Three Reasons Why You Make Terrible Decisions and How to Stop by Mark Manson. Everything you do in life is a trade-off. Anything you say, do, or pursue has a cost and a benefit. Those costs and benefits may not always be immediately apparent. Sometimes the costs and benefits are dislocated in time, the benefit being immediate and the cost in the distant future. Sometimes the costs or benefits are subtle and psychological, but nonetheless, there is always a trade-off for everything you do. We like to believe that we can find a life of only pleasure and no pain, of only success and no failure, of only acceptance and no rejection, but this is impossible. Gain and loss are simultaneous. For everything you say or do, there is an infinite number of alternative choices that you must forego in order to say or do them. As your Economics 101 class taught you, there is no such thing as a free lunch. If you're eating an awesome cheesesteak, you're giving up the chance to eat a hamburger. If you're eating a hamburger, you're giving up the chance to eat a double-stack burrito. And if you're eating a double-stack burrito, then you're giving up the ability to ever respect yourself again. This is decision-making in a nutshell. What are you willing to give up in each moment for something else? What is worth giving up in each moment for something? What is the something else worth pursuing? I know I'm speaking in broad strokes here, but these are at the core of what we all struggle with throughout our lives. If everything is a trade-off, then a good life means making good trades. It means getting a lot of benefit from whatever costs that we give up. The problem is, we tend to be awful at assessing what we're giving up and what we're gaining from our decisions. In fact, I don't know about you, but in my life, I've had my fair share of face plants where I clearly did not understand the costs of my decisions. To properly see what we're giving up and what we're gaining is a constant struggle. And that's what I'd like to spend some time talking about today. Why we make bad decisions and what we can do to make better ones. What is a good decision? Imagine I offered to play a game with you. You give me $1 and I flip a two-sided coin. If the coin lands heads, I give you $50. If it lands tails, you get nothing. What should you do? Obviously, you should start feeding me dollars like I'm a goddamn vending machine selling free money. The downside risk, $1, is minimal, and the potential upside of $50 is huge. There is no situation where you should not take me up on my offer. A good decision is risking little for the opportunity to gain a lot. Good decisions include striking up a conversation with someone you find interesting or attractive, asking a potentially embarrassing question, spending 10 minutes meditating every day, filling out job applications for positions that you're unlikely to get, starting a difficult conversation, and so on. Similarly, a bad decision is risking a lot for the opportunity to gain a little. Bad decisions include driving unsafely, lying and pretending to get somebody to like you, getting drunk or stoned the night before an important meeting or exam, stalking your ex and sending angry text messages through the night to try to get him or her back, and so on. Values and trade-offs. You may ask, what is a little and a lot though? Well, it depends on what you value. In fact, this is why if you've read my work for a long time, I'm constantly harping on personal values. Most propositions in life are not as simple as my coin flipping game. Most are confusing and subjective. Is giving up your social life for a year worth continuing your education? Is buying a house worth living on a tight budget for the next 10 years? You have to know what is important to you to make those decisions well. 
And obviously, good decision for me might be a terrible decision for you, and vice versa. Our values determine how we measure the options in our lives. They are the yardsticks that determine the size of our costs and the size of our benefits when making our trade-offs. And if we don't know what yardsticks we're using, then we can't accurately determine what is good for us and what's not. This is the true problem of people who suffer from indecision. They don't know what they care about. They don't know what matters to them. They haven't found something larger than themselves to commit to. Find your cause, find your values, discover the costs and the benefits of your actions, and then taking action becomes infinitely more simple. Now, you'll probably notice a pattern with the examples above. Good decisions tend to be difficult to make for some reason. Even when they're obvious and we know they are good decisions, which is not always the case, we still struggle to make them. And conversely, bad decisions seem incredibly easy to fall into. Why is that? Why do we knowingly do things that are risky and bad for ourselves and struggle to get off our asses to do one good thing? Why do we seem to suck at this whole thing called life? Well, if you said it's because we're a bunch of blithering idiots, you're not totally wrong. Why we make bad decisions. Humans make bad decisions because we are inherently terrible at assessing the risk and rewards of our decisions. Put simply, we're not objective. And as much as I'd love to tell you that we can overcome these psychological mechanisms with a really cute gimmick or a three-step technique, the fact is that these flaws seem to be permanent features of how our minds work. We can't escape them. The best we can do is gain an awareness of them and manage them appropriately. I could write dozens of articles about all of the heuristics and biases that cause us to view our decisions inaccurately, but for the sake of brevity and my sanity, I'll lump our psychological failures into three categories and then summarize them. Those categories are one, the influence of our emotions, two, our poor perception of time, and three, the seduction of social status. Let's take them one by one. One, how our emotions derail our decision-making. Think back to some of the stupidest decisions you've ever made. Chances are most of those decisions were motivated by you being an emotional wreck. Maybe you were angry and in a fit of rage smashed your keyboard against your desk, causing you to get fired. Maybe you were so sad from your breakup that you drank yourself into a stupor, blacked out, drove home, and woke up in a jail cell. Maybe you were so anxious that you passed up on a huge career opportunity that you've always wanted. Whatever it is, we've all been there. Our emotions hijack our sense of reality, and suddenly something that is clearly a good decision feels like a horribly scary, icky, bad decision. Or what is obviously a terrible idea draws us in with an irresistible force until we wake up in a pool of our own vomit wondering what happened. The problem is that our emotions operate separately from our thoughts. One way to think about it is that we all possess two brains, a thinking brain and a feeling brain. Our thinking brain is our higher level human brain. It's the intelligent, thoughtful, patient part of ourselves. But our feeling brain is our animalistic side. It's our cravings, our urges, and our desires. Sadly, the feeling brain is much stronger than the thinking brain. In fact, our feeling brains tend to bully our thinking brains around in our heads. Our thinking brains are like, oh, hey, that person we're attracted to. It's a great opportunity to talk to them. 
and our feeling brain starts screaming things like fear, shame, loser, you're a piece of shit, a piece of shit, they'll never love you, nobody will ever love you, until our thinking brain is cowering in a corner, shaking, and it capitulates. Okay, 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 you're right, they probably wouldn't like us. What is on paper a proposition to risk $1 to make 50 talking to them takes all of 10 seconds, and you're literally losing nothing. It starts to feel like an incredibly risky and terrifying proposition. So we sit there, sipping our warm beer, watching the love of our lives quietly walk out of the room, wondering for the next week what could have been. But how do we overcome this? How do we develop an ability to manage our emotions? How do we gain a little bit of separation between what we feel and how we act? Well, it's hard. And I don't know if you ever completely master it. The first step is to develop some greater self-awareness, to see your emotions as they happen. Many people don't even realize they're sad or mad until long after the fact, thus causing them to make poor decisions without knowing. Once you've developed a little bit of self-awareness, the next step is to develop a habit of reasoning by working through important decisions, either out loud or on paper, before saying or doing something drastic. I'll talk a bit more about these ideas in a section below, but this can be journaling, can be talking to somebody you trust, or even running your decisions by a coach or therapist before committing to them. Number two, how our poor perception of time derails our decision-making. There's an interesting economics experiment where if you offer people $100 today or $150 a year from now, most people will take the $100 today. In economics, this is known as temporal discounting. We discount the value of having something far off in the future compared to having it now. In psychology, it's often referred to as the present bias, and you see it crop up in all sorts of other areas of life. We'd rather eat that double pepperoni pizza every Saturday night than think about the weight we'll gain a year from now. We'd rather be right in an argument than think about how much we might be affecting a friendship a week, a month, or a year in the future. We'd rather have fun tonight than think about how we're going to feel at work tomorrow. We tend to overestimate the value of something now and underestimate the value of something later. This is why people are terrible at saving money. This is why we procrastinate important tasks. This is why we put off having necessary but difficult conversations. Time messes us up in other ways, too. Think about this. Take a penny and put it on the first square of a chessboard. Now put two pennies on the next. Now put four on the next. Continue doubling the pennies for all 64 squares on the board. How much money is on the last square? If you said 1.844 quintillion dollars, you were right. But let's be honest, you didn't say that. You probably said some generic large number like 5 million or something like that, thinking you were being very clever and guessing high. Meanwhile, you were only off by about nine zeros. Our minds are poor at compounding things over time. We overestimate the pain of doing something for 10 minutes or 30 minutes today without realizing the compounding effects it can have if we fail to do it every day for months and months on end. For example, let's pretend that there's some imaginary skill that if you practice for 30 minutes a day, you'd get 1% better each day for the next year. Now let's say you actually did practice for 30 minutes per day. How much better would you be at the end of the year? And if you're somewhat familiar with compounding functions, you might know to guess extra high. So you say something like 1,000% better. But the real answer? you'd be 3,778% better, almost 38 times better than you were at the start of the year. Again, our mind doesn't think like that. Instead, we think, oh, what's the big deal if I miss one workout? Not going to kill me. 
then we proceed to say that once or twice a week for years and years on end. And because we don't think exponentially, we vastly underestimate how much we're actually giving up. Because here's how much you improve if you only practice that skill every other day for a year. 611%. 3,778% versus 611%. That's a 6x difference in results for only 2 times the effort. That's the difference between being an expert at something and being merely good at it. Run that out over a few years, and that's the difference between being a professional and an amateur. Not a sprint of 12-hour days, but a slow, steady marathon of 30 minutes per day, year after year. None of us think about this shit when we're going about our lives. That's because it's really, really hard. Our brains don't think exponentially. It strikes us as counterintuitive. We vastly overestimate the short-term benefits of taking a day off or skipping practice or bailing on one of our commitments. Missing one workout isn't a big deal. And you're right, it really isn't that big of a deal. But we don't consider that just one workout isn't a big deal when repeated every week or even every other week for a couple years can have a drastic effect on our results. Three, how our perceptions are easily influenced by status. You may be wondering why our brains function like this. It's almost as though we're handicapped in some way, being at the mercy of our emotions, struggling to properly value things in the future. But the truth is that for most of human evolution, these were not the handicaps, but the benefits of our minds. 50,000 years ago, out on the savanna, you couldn't consider whether something would be more valuable a year from now or not. No, you had to kill a big fucking animal, or be killed by that big fucking animal. That's all that mattered. You needed to be overly concerned with the present. Similarly, we inherit a retinue of biases and prejudices around social status as well. Why? Because we're a bunch of fucking monkeys with fancy colorful screens in front of us. That's why. Despite thousands of years of our best efforts, humans self-organize in the status hierarchies, with the few reaping the most resources and opportunities at the top, and everyone else scrounging for the leftovers. Now, I know what you're saying. You're saying, I don't give a fuck about status hierarchies. I'm my own man or woman. I do what I want. I will not be swayed by silly social markers of prestige and class. Well, that's nice, but you're wrong. The fact is that we are all subconsciously affected by what we perceive as valuable and socially desirable in others. It's automatic. It colors our perceptions. It skews our emotions. When in the presence of extreme beauty, wealth, or power, we all become a little bit dumber, a little bit more passive, and a lot more insecure. I noticed this the first couple times I met Will Smith. I realized that, without even meaning to, I laughed harder at his jokes, paid more attention to his stories, watched if he got up and moved around the room. It was totally involuntary, and I wasn't the only one. When he's in a room, it's like a vacuum sucking all the attention. Knowing that I was going to work with him on a book, I had to start consciously checking myself to make sure I wasn't doing something stupid because he was famous. Even then, it was still hard. We tend to give way too much credit to people we perceive to have social status. In psychology, this is known as the halo effect. It's our tendency to assume that physically attractive people are smarter or nicer than they actually are, that successful people are more interesting than they actually are, that powerful people are funnier or more charismatic than they actually are. As with most of our cognitive biases, marketers take advantage of this to make money. Think about all the celebrities doing car commercials and shilling worthless supplements and beauty products. Think about how former presidents and heads of state can get paid half a million dollars to simply be in a room. 
Think about how you've convinced yourself that you like different clothes, different food, different music because somebody you really respect or admire likes them. We all do it. It's impossible not to. Like I said, we're fucking monkeys with screens. The best we can do is simply be aware of how we are influenced by the perceptions of status and modify our reasoning accordingly. Notice how you react around people you deem particularly successful or admirable. Notice how much more agreeable you become. Notice how you tend to make positive assumptions about them, even though you don't necessarily know whether they are true or not. Then question these things. Ask yourself, if some random person I know said this, would I react in the same way? And if you're honest with yourself, you'll find that sometimes the answer is no. It sucks to admit it, but welcome to being human. Our biases around people of status and prestige are important because we're likely to overvalue things related to them and undervalue things not related to them. As someone who spent much of high school and college getting drunk and high in desperate hopes of impressing the people around me, I can tell you, poor decisions were made. How to make better decisions. So what can we do to help ourselves navigate these biases and faulty perceptions? How can we make sure we're making the right decisions and avoiding the wrong ones? Like I said earlier, there's no permanent way to solve your mind's flaws. They are baked in by hundreds of thousands of years of evolution, but there are definitely some steps we can take to improve our chances. Number one, write it out. I know everyone and their dog tells you to keep a journal, write out your thoughts, question your ideas, but there's a reason for that. When you write out your ideas, it forces you to look at them a little bit more objectively. In fact, it's almost like you're not having them when you write them out. You start explaining why you sold all your shit and moved to Tahiti, and as you're cresting the third paragraph, it starts to dawn on you. This is fucking insane. Who does this? You do, bucko. That is, assuming your decisions are run on autopilot. Writing out major life decisions cuts off that autopilot and forces you to evaluate your own assumptions. One thing I like to do when I'm mulling over a major decision is to simply draw a line down the middle of a page and write out all the risks and costs on one side and all the potential benefits on the other. This simple exercise alone can often clarify where your biases lie and what you're missing. Two, learn to override your anxiety. Most of our bad decisions occur because they feel comfortable and automatic. Our emotions steer us incorrectly. Our perception of time is inaccurate and skewed towards the present. Our internal sense of status colors how we view other people and ourselves. All of these things mean that often the best decision will strike us as some combination of counterintuitive, difficult, and scary. We will have to go against our intuition. We will have to trust numbers rather than our gut feelings. We will have to risk disappointing others. None of this is particularly pleasant or easy. In fact, it's a kind of internal skill that you have to develop through practice. Some people call it stepping outside of your comfort zone. Others call it leaning in. I sometimes think of it as eating a shit sandwich. Whatever you prefer to call it, it's important that you get good at it. Test your limits, question your assumptions, act despite the anxiety, and make better decisions for it. Three, understand where your weak spots are. We each have individual weaknesses when it comes to our decision-making. Some of us get more emotional than others. Some of us are fame whores and can't turn down a fancy cocktail party if our life depended on it. Some of us really struggle to think about the future. It's useful to understand what you're better and worse at adapting to and keeping that in mind when considering future decisions. 
I'm generally pretty good at not getting swayed by the people around me. After all, I'm the not-give-a-fuck guy, remember? But I do tend to be impulsive in a lot of areas in my life, particularly when it comes to health-related habits. It's a battle that I've had to constantly fight. Four, set up your environment to prevent those weak spots. Finally, the best way to overcome these weaknesses isn't through brute willpower or obsessive discipline. It's actually much simpler than that. Simply organize your life to compensate for your bad decision-making. For instance, I suck at not eating junk food. Therefore, I make a point to not have it in my house. I found it's way easier to simply not buy it than it is to buy it and not eat it, so I just don't buy it. Another example, while working from home, I've got accountability buddies who I check in with on Zoom and Slack each week. It's just a simple agreement among friends to make sure we're all sitting in our chairs and working at 9 a.m. each morning. It's not complicated or genius in any way, but it works. The fear of being the dickhead who slept in while everybody else was working gets me out of bed in the morning, and it keeps me productive. Find ways to alter your environment and your information consumption to counteract your weak points in decision-making. This may mean blocking certain websites, unfriending certain people, not reading certain types of news stories. Whatever it is, once you're aware of it, find lifestyle-driven ways to attack it. Indecision is the worst decision. Finally, I want to take a moment to say that while there are many bad decisions you can make in your life, perhaps none is worse than making no decision. We all must make decisions. Every day, big and small, we have to choose what to eat, what to wear, who to talk to, how to spend our time, and so on. If you're not choosing what happens in your life, then you are simply not living, period. The problem, as we discussed, is that every decision is accompanied by costs, risks, and sacrifices. Often, if we're good at structuring our lives, we can find risks and costs that we're happy with, and perhaps that we even enjoy taking on. But a lot of the time, we're not going to be thrilled with the risks and costs of our decisions. And often, we will try to ignore those risks and costs. We will try to pretend that they didn't happen or that they weren't our fault. If we do this enough, then we may even reach a point where we decide we want to experience no downside in life, that we don't think we should have to deal with any risks or costs, no matter what we do. On the one hand, this makes us an entitled and self-absorbed twat. On the other, while it is annoying to others, it only harms ourselves. Refusing to be accountable for your decisions is a decision. Refusing responsibility for the costs of your choices is a choice. It is possibly the worst choice, because when you give up the desire to make a decision, when you choose indecision, then you are no longer the cause within your own life, but the effect. You no longer determine your own fate. Instead, you hand it off to the others around you. And while this may make you feel comfortable in the short term, to be able to say, see, it's not my fault things didn't work out, X, Y, and Z happened, it will utterly destroy you in the long term. Make decisions. Choose your own life. Live with the risks, because the risks are what make it meaningful. And never forget, you're still just a fucking monkey with a screen.